Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today we feature John Stott, described as the presumptive Pope. In 2011, the evangelical world lost one of its greatest spokesmen, and I have lost one of my closest friends and advisors, said Billy Graham, paying tribute to the Reverend John Robert Walmsley Stott. Today, John Stott presents a sermon on The Doubt Barrier. Soon after the publication of his famous book, The Satanic Verses, and soon after the call from Ayatollah Khomeini for his assassination, Salman Rushdie said these rather surprising words. The heart of what they are angry about is not the specific insults, It's to do with the whole notion of doubt. Doubt, he went on, it seems to me, is the central condition of a human being in the 20th century. One of the things that has happened to us in the 20th century as a human race is to learn how certainty crumbles in your hand. We cannot any longer have a fixed certain view of anything. The table that we're sitting next to, the ground beneath our feet, the laws of science, they're all full of doubt now. Everything we know is pervaded by doubt and not by certainty. Well, I wonder what your reaction to that quotation is. To some degree, I think Salman Rushdie is right. That is to say, doubt generally speaking, is one of the hallmarks of the present age. Many of the landmarks which once gave us a sense of security have long ago disappeared. And the old certainties that we once took for granted are certainties no longer. As we look around the world, everything seems to be in flux, everything is in question, Everything is in doubt. So it's not surprising that the patron saint of the modern era is Saint Thomas. Doubting Thomas, we like affectionately to call him, because we feel he's one of us. Thomas, the honest skeptic. Thomas, the pop hero in an era of unbelief. We feel closer to Thomas in his doubts than we do to John in his faith. He endears himself to us because we see ourselves in him. And we even have a rather sneaking admiration for his stubborn refusal to believe without adequate empirical evidence. Why, Thomas personifies the scientific spirit the insistence on data which are amenable to investigation by our five senses. Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, said Thomas, and unless I place my fingers in the mark of the nails, 
and unless I place my hand in his side, I will not believe. We understand, Thomas. We too have our doubts. We too are tempted to lay down the conditions on which we're prepared to believe. And at best, we are a mixture of faith and doubt. It reminds me of a young Indian man whom I knew a good many years ago who came from Kerala and whose name was Thomas Ununi. And I understand that Ununi is Malayalam for Abraham. Fancy having a name like Thomas Abraham. (laughs) Abraham the man of faith and Thomas the man of doubt. But I think every one of us is a little bit like that. So I want to trace with you this morning Thomas's pilgrimage from doubt to faith in several stages. Would you be good enough now to turn to the text in your Bible? It's the Gospel of John. We're looking at John's Easter these Sunday mornings and we come to John 20, page 110 in the New Testament section of the Bibles. John 20, verse 24. And I want to introduce, before I read this to you, I want to introduce Thomas to you first of all as Thomas the absentee. Verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, that is one of the apostles, whose nickname was the twin, was not with them when Jesus came on the first Easter day, the passage we looked at last Sunday morning. Thomas the absentee. You ever thought that for one week after the first Easter day, of the 11 surviving apostles, 10 were believers and one was an unbeliever, namely Thomas. Why? What was the reason for this disparity between the faith of the 10 and the unbelief of the one. Well, the original reason for Thomas's unbelief was a purely pragmatic one. He was absent when Jesus came. We don't know why he was absent. We don't know whether his absence was deliberate or not. We don't know whether he stayed away because of his disillusion and depression. We don't know whether perhaps he was unavoidably detained by a touch of the flu or by family matters or maybe by business concerns. We don't know the reason. But we do know that on the first crucial Easter day when Jesus came into their midst, he wasn't there. So as a result, he missed the blessing which the others were given. The risen Jesus came, stood in their midst, spoke to them, showed them his hands and his side, and Thomas wasn't there. Do you know, something similar happens every Sunday in every church in the world. The Lord's people gather on the Lord's day, in the presence of the risen Lord who is really, though invisibly present, and somebody isn't there. 
The readings and the sermon happened to be particularly appropriate to him or her that day, but they aren't present to listen to the word of God. It's the calculated risk taken by irregular churchgoers. You may miss a blessing, as Thomas did. So let's learn that first lesson from Thomas, namely the spiritual risk of spasmodic churchgoing and the spiritual blessing of regularity. Churchgoing is not only for believers, churchgoing is also for half-believers and unbelievers and doubters and agnostics, because faith doesn't usually emerge in a vacuum. Faith is usually born within the community of faith, because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And it is when the word of God is read and preached in the community of faith that faith is born in the heart of an unbeliever. Fortunately, Thomas didn't repeat his mistake. Fortunately, although he was absent on Easter Day, he was present on the first Sunday after Easter, which is what today is. So he was back in his place. And in the goodness of God, the blessing he missed on the first Sunday, he was given on the second. Thomas, the absentee. Now, secondly, I want to introduce you to Thomas the skeptic, or Thomas the doubter. Verse 25 of John 20, so the other disciples or apostles, that is the ten who had been present on Easter day, the other apostles <coughs> told Thomas, we have seen the Lord. And Thomas said, how wonderful. No, Thomas said, you think you've seen him? Unless I see him, I'm not going to believe. It's not enough to believe because you say you've seen him. I've got to see him myself. Now, most people sympathize with and even respect Thomas for his insistence on first-hand sensory verification because they have, it, have had it dinned into them since they were kids at school, that they mustn't believe anything that is not amenable to their sight and hearing and touch, they respect Thomas. After all, if they know the Easter story, they know that the three people and groups who have already seen Jesus all came to believe through sensory perception. If you glance back to verses 6 to 8, Peter and John, who ran to the tomb in the early morning on Easter day, saw the empty grave clothes. And because of what they saw, they believed. And then in verse 16, Mary Magdalene heard the voice of the one she previously thought was the gardener. But when she heard the master's voice calling her name Mary, she knew at once who it was, through hearing. And then in verse 20, to the 10, on the first Easter day, Jesus spoke, 
to them. They heard his voice and he showed them his hands and his side. So then it seems reasonable that because all of them had either seen Jesus with their eyes or heard him with their ears or touched him with their hands, it seemed reasonable that Thomas should have demanded the same grounds for faith. And indeed, Jesus did condescend to Thomas's weakness a little later and gave him the evidence for which he asked. Verse 27. But the story doesn't end there. Jesus having given him in his condescension, Jesus having yielded to his demand, went on to rebuke him. Or at least to pronounce a blessing on those who did not make those demands, but who believed without seeing. Verse 29, have you now believed, Thomas? Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now don't misunderstand that. That was not a requirement of faith without evidence. It was a requirement of faith without sight, which is a very different thing. Faith is not faith without evidence. I often quote H.L. Mencken, that sage of Baltimore between the wars, who worked for the Baltimore Sun in the United States, who said faith may be defined briefly as an illogical belief in the occurrence of the improbable. But that is not the meaning of faith. Alice in Wonderland, or through the looking glass, had also got it wrong. Do you remember? She said, but I can't believe that. Can't you, the queen said in a pitying tone. Try again. Draw a long breath. Shut your eyes. Alice laughed. There's no use trying, she said. One cannot believe impossible things. Well, I dare say you haven't had much practice, said the queen. When I was your age, I always did it for half an hour a day. Why, sometimes I've believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. (laughs) But that is not the meaning of faith. Faith is not believing impossible things against the evidence. Faith is faith on evidence, but it is faith without sight. Are we clear in our minds that faith and reason are never set over against each other in the Bible? Never. Faith is always thought to be reasonable and rests upon a reasonable foundation. To be sure, it goes beyond reason, but it is not believing in spite of or against reason. So although faith and reason are never contrasted, faith and sight are contrasted. We walk by faith, not by sight. Blessed are those who believe who have not seen So faith is not without evidence, but it is without sight. Now, I think it's very important to pursue this with you, and I would like, if I may, to suggest to you that there are two equally reasonable grounds on which to believe anything. We all are believers. We believe lots and lots and lots of things. And there are two bases on which we believe what we believe. The first is our own personal investigation. 
And the second is the testimony of others who are credible witnesses. First, we believe because we verified it ourselves. And the second, we believe it because somebody else who is believable has seen it or heard it and has told us. And we believe them without personal verification. Some of you know that I've very recently returned from two weeks in the Antarctic. Before I went, I knew that there was a very beautiful bird called the snowy petrel, which is pure white, except for its black eye and beak. Now, I'd never seen it, but other people had been to the Antarctic, and I'd read their descriptions in bird books. I knew that there was a thing called the snowy petrel. Now I've seen one with my own eyes. But I do not believe any more strongly in the snowy petrel because I've seen it than I did previously on the testimony of others who were credible witnesses. You take another example. Most of us, I suppose, have a bank account, for better or for worse. And we receive our monthly or maybe quarterly statement. And occasionally, I expect, we've had that shocking experience of finding that we're overdrawn and not believing it. (laughs) So there is an alternative before us. Either we can work laboriously through all the counterfoils of checkbook and pay-in book so that we check every entry on our statement or pass sheet, or we can take it on trust from the bank. Now, it's perfectly true that bank computers are not infallible, but the bank is more often right than its incredulous clients (laughs) who don't want to believe. Normally, we take it on trust from a credible witness. Here is one other example. In 1966, the Gemini 2 astronauts were orbiting the Earth, penetrating deeper into space than anybody had gone. 850 miles, I think it was, in the middle 60s. And 850 miles high, they saw what no human being had ever seen before. They saw the curvature of the planet Earth all round to 150 degrees. A journalist commented at the time, what the most eminent of the ancients had guessed at and what the rest of us have more or less taken on trust ever since, they had had confirmed by the evidence of their own sight. But it was perfectly reasonable for us to believe that the earth was a sphere before that, though nobody had ever seen it. We took it on trust. Now Thomas, to come back to him, could have and should have believed on the testimony of his fellow apostles. They came to him and they said, we have seen the Lord. Now, he knew those men, those ten men. He knew they were sensible people. Several of them were hard-headed fishermen. 
He knew they were not liable to hallucinations. They weren't that personality type. He knew they were sensible, down-to-earth men, and he knew that they were honest. They were not given to lies. So he knew their integrity and he knew their good sense. He should have believed them. He should have accepted their testimony as we do today. God's way of faith is not groundless. It is based on testimony. wonder if you've ever thought it like this. If it was necessary to have an actual resurrection appearance of the Lord before it was reasonable to believe, then ever since the ascension when Jesus returned to heaven and there were no more resurrection appearances, with the sole exception of the one to Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road, if I go back to my uh, hypothesis, if it was necessary to have a resurrection uh, appearance before it was reasonable to believe, there wouldn't have been any disciples since the day of ascension. As it is, all disciples who come to believe in Jesus have done so because of the credibility of the eyewitnesses. And millions of people who have never seen Jesus believe the apostles who did see him and are eyewitnesses and bear witness to their eyewitness experience in the pages of the New Testament. So the reasonableness of faith depends on the credibility of the witnesses. And we have good reason to trust them. For one thing, they were Christian men, and Christian men are honest men. They don't deceive, they don't tell lies. I have confidence in the integrity of the gospel writers. For another thing, they give us reason in the gospels to have our confidence in their integrity confirmed because they are not afraid to include in their testimony bits and pieces of evidence which show them up in a bad light. Peter is not afraid, for example, that the story of his threefold denial of Jesus should be included. He would have been tempted to hush it up. Who wanted to wash his dirty linen in public? He didn't. He included it. It establishes my confidence in his reliability. Besides, they were eyewitnesses, and they were bearing witness to what they had seen and heard. The reasonableness of faith depends on the credibility of the witnesses. One of the greatest expositions of the Apostles' Creed that has ever been written was written by uh, a forebear of Michael Bourne, Bishop of Chester, a man called John Pearson, who was Bishop of Chester, in the 17th century. <clears throat> and in his famous exposition of the creed, he writes this. The strength and validity of every testimony must bear proportion with the authority of the testifier. And the authority of the testifier is founded upon his ability and integrity. His ability in the knowledge of that which he asserteth, his integrity in asserting it according to his knowledge. So when you know that there is a certain ability and integrity in these men, and they had both, it is reasonable to believe their testimony. Now, I wonder if you'd look back to your text, 
And if we could look together at verses 30 and 31, which apply the lesson of Thomas to us and to everybody else. John 20, 30. <clears throat> now, Jesus did many other signs. Many signs other than his miracles, other than the resurrection, which is the greatest sign of all. He did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, and in particular the twelve apostles. Signs which are not written in this book. But these are written because the evangelists made a selection of what they wanted to record. But the signs that are written in this book are written in order that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life. Now, I think those two verses are exceedingly important for our understanding of faith and for our understanding of the New Testament and its authority. Let me put it to you very quickly in five stages. One, Jesus did many signs. There is a fact he did many things, he said many things. Two, he did them in the presence of chosen witnesses. He didn't do them in private and in secret. He did them in public in order that they might be seen. Thirdly, those signs which were seen and witnessed were written down in a book. It was God's purpose that they should be recorded for the benefit of those who did not see them. They were written by the eyewitness for the non-eyewitnesses. And fourthly, the purpose they had in writing them down, the purpose of the eyewitnesses, was not only that others should through their eyes see Jesus, but should come to believe in him. Their testimony would lead to faith. And fifthly, the purpose of their coming to faith was that they might receive life. We receive life through faith. Faith comes through testimony. Testimony is written and it came from the original eyewitnesses of Jesus. So faith is the way to life, and the way to faith is testimony. Now, I've not left myself very long for my brief third and last point. We've looked at Thomas the absentee and the blessing he missed. We've looked at Thomas the skeptic and how he ought to have believed on the testimony of credible witnesses. And now thirdly, Thomas the believer. What I want to draw your attention to now is that as soon as he believed, he worshipped. Verse 29, my Lord and my God. So it's very obvious that Thomas was a sincere skeptic. He was a sincere seeker. Thomas was not an intellectual dilettante. He was not playing games with the truth. He was not laying down conditions on which he was prepared to believe for fun. He had no... He was not the kind of person who said, well... Whatever evidence you are able to produce, I'm still not going to believe. On the contrary, he was in earnest. So that as soon as he saw, he believed. And as soon as he believed, he worshipped. And by the way, Jesus accepted his worship. 
Jesus rebuked his unbelief. Jesus did not rebuke his worship. Jesus accepted it, which is a powerful evidence that Jesus is who he said he was, the Son of God. And then tradition says that St. Thomas, who would now become a believer and a worshiper, also became himself a witness. Tradition says that he went first to Parthia, then to what used to be called Persia, and then to India. You know there are so-called Thomas churches in India that trace their origin to Thomas arriving in what we now call Kerala on the west coast of India around about 50 or so AD. Well, whether that is true or not, he certainly became a witness. And in his witnessing, I'm very sure that Thomas urged his listeners not to repeat his own mistake. I'm sure Thomas said to them, don't demand evidence as I did, but believe on the ground of the testimony as I should have done myself but didn't. And others will have come to believe through Thomas's testimony as he should have come to believe through the testimony of the ten. So what is the conclusion? Well, it is that the ground of Christian faith is still the testimony of the apostolic eyewitnesses. And that is what the New Testament is. We believe in Jesus Christ today not because we have seen him with the outward eye, but because we've seen him with the inward eye through the testimony of those who did see him with the outward eye. So, as we read the New Testament, we read John saying this kind of thing at the beginning of his first letter, that which we have heard with our ears and seen with our eyes and touched with our hands, that we proclaim to you in order that you may believe and have fellowship with us. So here are the eyewitnesses, the apostolic eyewitnesses, claiming in the Gospels to have seen and urging us to believe on their testimony. I wonder then if there is a skeptic in church this morning. Sure there is. I'm sure there are probably many who are half believers, doubters, unsure. May I suggest to you that what you need to do more urgently than anything else is read the New Testament for yourself. I am amazed at the number of otherwise educated people that I have met who have rejected Jesus Christ without ever having read the foundation documents, or not since they were kids in school. But they're no longer kids in school. They're adults, and they've never read the New Testament. Shame on us. We must read it, and as we do so, expose ourselves to the apostolic testimony. And listen to these men who claim either to have seen Jesus or to be recording the experience of those who had seen him. As Mark is recording Peter's reminiscences, for example, and uh, uh, Luke is writing uh, with the authority of Paul and so on. So we need to expose ourselves to the apostolic witness. And as we do so... If you are an honest seeker, as Thomas was, I believe that the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of Truth, will use this apostolic eyewitness and testimony to create faith within you, 
so that you see the reasonableness of it as you have never seen it before. Seeing you will believe, and believing I trust you will worship as we fall on our faces before him with the words of Thomas on our lips, my Lord and my God. Let us pray. Perhaps in imagination we could fall prostrate before him now as Jesus Christ stands before us asking for our faith and our worship. Maybe we still need to say to him, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Or maybe we're ready to say to him, my Lord and my God. Let's speak to him in our hearts for a moment. Lord Jesus Christ, we desire to thank you together this morning for your loving providence, not only in having spoken and acted, but in having done so deliberately before chosen eyewitnesses. We thank you that you chose the twelve to be with you in order that they might bear witness to what they had seen and heard. And we thank you for your further providence in causing their witness to be written so that it is available to us across the centuries and in every part of the world. Give us the courage and the integrity to read the New Testament, we pray, with open minds and hearts to expose ourselves to this witness and grant that the Holy Spirit of truth may use it to bring us to faith and worship. For the glory of your great name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to John Stott. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.